Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made, and forgive the sins of all who repent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So we're continuing on in the Catechism, and I must tell you, uh, this has not been made completely public yet, uh, but I'm going to be taking a short three-week sabbatical uh, starting uh, this week, and so I will be bowing away from catechesis for that time, and my brother priest will ably handle handle that, uh, and maybe Alex Vogelman might get into a little bit of catechesis. That's always fun. Uh, I don't know because I'm never here when he does it, but but it's just the 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 I want you to get the flavoring of you know all those various uh, priests getting in and doing that, um, and I know they'll they'll. Uh, do their duties quite admirably. Uh, please pray for me while I'm on that. You'll get more information about that probably this afternoon in an email out to the parish. Um, but I do want to kind of go back to where we were last week. We were talking about in the creed this section. Uh, if you're following along, we're right. We're going to start with question 97 this morning. Um, but we were talking about the Holy Catholic Church. And uh, this causes uh, some people no small amount of scandal. Uh, they like to instead, when they recite the creed in their churches, say the Holy Christian Church, which I think is sort of one of those like, well, no, don't, no duh moments. I mean, is there any other church? And uh, the reason we say Catholic is not to sort of refer to uh, one church or another, but simply to the church. The church is Catholic. Um, now, this causes consternation because, of course, you know, the Catholic Church is what we usually call the Church of Rome. Well, uh, in the beginning, it was not so. <laughs> uh, the, the church was Catholic because it proclaimed the whole doctrine of the whole faith through the whole church and, and, was, and, and uh, did so in, um, in wholeness throughout time and space. And so I want you to hear that, that when we Anglicans use the word Catholic, we're referring to that which has always been and always will be. Um, and that's really the, the distinguishing mark there. But we talk about these four marks of the church. The church is what? Do you remember? Do I have to do this again? You want to go back? <laughs> One? Holy. Holy. Good. All right. All right, good. So we got it. Um, the One holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Um, this speaks not only to the church's essential unity. Uh, why? Well, let me ask this. Why is the church one? Just One God. As, as Paul says in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is in all and with all and through all and in all. And, and that's really quite true. Our unity as Christians does not come because Jonathan and I agree 100% on every last jot and tittle of doctrine. Thanks be to God for that. Uh, it, our unity as Christians is, is a corporate unity in Christ. Okay? I'm in Christ. Steve is in Christ. Uh, Kim's in Christ, right? We're in Christ. And it's, it is in Christ that our unity is found, um, not because we uh, happen to agree with each other. Now, I should say this, Christians do agree because of their unity in Christ, right? And this is actually, if you study uh, the development of doctrine or the history of doctrine, this is one of the front and center things is, whom do we, whom do we proclaim Christ to be? And it is this unified proclamation which unifies the church, but it's founded upon their union in Christ that they do this. Okay? So that's really important. 
Um, and then, of course, the church is holy, not meaning that uh, all of her members are holy and do th- right things all the time and are perfect in every good way and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, God forbid that, you know, well, it would be great if the church was truly uh, morally holy, right? But, but that's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is the church is set apart as a body. Um, the church is Catholic. We've already mentioned that this morning. And also the church is apostolic. What we mean by apostolic is that the church is founded upon the faith of the apostles who met and walked with and witnessed the risen Christ. Um, their message, that apostolic message, is what has gone out throughout the whole world. Um, it's what is contained in Scripture, um, and it's what we proclaim today. As the Catechism says, uh, for Anglicans, all authentic Christianity is apostolic Christianity. Um, and the, the analogy I like to give is this, because at the end of the day, apostle, and the word that's used in the Greek, refers directly to the word that we use today almost every day, which is postal, postage, post office, right? We send things. Now, if you found out that people were opening your mail and changing some of your wording, how'd that go? You're not offended by that? Okay, let me, let me say, you should be offended, right? Okay, that's, that's a great transgression against your, your freedom. It's a great transgression against your, your uniqueness as human beings. It's a federal crime for a reason. It's mail fraud, as Stevie just said very admirably. She's a you know, constitutional scholar, so I would expect nothing less. Uh, and, and so we have this very clear. Why? Because words have sacredness just in their very basic sense. But the apostolic word has an even higher degree of sacredness. Why? Because it testifies to the risen Christ. And this is why, for Christians, we cannot alter the apostolic faith. Just can't. Um, We can't alter it uh, one bit. Now, how do we know what the apostolic faith is? Yeah, Scripture, right? It's pure and simple Scripture. And then in these great little concise uh, distillations of Scripture like the Creed. Um, so the Apostles' Creed is, is that, precisely, a distillation of the apostolic faith. And that's why we call it the Apostles' Creed. Um, in fact, in the ancient church, people believed that each one of the apostles donated one bit of the Creed. In fact, Ambrose loves to talk about this. It's not true. But, <laughs> but, but Ambrose says that all the apostles got together and were joined from the four corners of the earth, and they all put in their, uh, their donation, right? Well, Ambrose has this wonderful homily about this, and I want to share it with you uh, today because it it shows us the kind of um, duty that we have to the apostolic faith. He says, well, think about um, a group of people forming a corporation. Each of them, let's say, puts in $1,000 to start this corporation. Are they responsible only for their donation to it, or are they responsible for the whole? They're responsible for the whole. And so Ambrose says... When you receive this gift from the apostles you bec- and you give it back, you become a member of this corporate body, do you see? And you are responsible for the whole. Um, well, that'll preach, right? It's, it's you're responsible for it. Every Christian is responsible to hold the faith and defend the faith. All right, so let's continue on with the communion of saints. Uh, it's quite quite apropos that we would talk about the communion of saints on All Saints Sunday. Um, by the way, uh, what we've just done, and, and uh, you know, All Saints Day is not on the Sunday following November 1st. It's on November 1st. We're just kind of keeping it because, well, 
this sensibility that we can only do real things on Sundays, which, you know, kind of drives me crazy. Uh, but, but alas, here you are, it's Sunday morning and you're here. Um, and we also don't rule the calendar. But uh, we have Halloween, which is the eve of All Saints Day, right? And in the Christian calendar, you start feasting on the eve of the day, because we follow an essentially Jewish way of thinking about days and years and weeks. So we start on that evening, and that's why people would go out at night and have a party on All, on all Hallows' Eve. Um, and then All Saints' Day is a day of feasting in which we remember the communion of saints, especially those that are not uh, known to us, right? Um, we believe that the power of sanctity is so high that there are many saints that are unknown to us. We don't know who they are. Only God knows who they are. And so we remember those saints on that day. And then on All Souls' Day, which is November 2nd, um, we offer prayers uh, on behalf of the dead, um, which, you know, can often be misunderstood. What we're doing is not, we're not praying for apparitions of the dead. We're not practicing necromancy. Um, we're simply appealing to God uh, for the repose of the soul of those whom we love. It's very simple. Um, and that happens on All Souls' Day. Um, but today we're talking about the communion of the saints. So we'll start with question 97. Who are the saints? The saints are all those in heaven and on earth who have faith in Christ, are set apart to God in Christ, are made holy by His grace, and live faithfully in Him and for Him. First of all, those saints are not just those on earth. Where are they? In heaven and on earth, right? We could even just say in heaven and on earth. Uh, that um, the saints are not merely those who are dead, um, but those who are alive as well. They're not merely those who are alive, but those who are dead as well. Um, the communion of saints encompasses all the church throughout time, um, which is a really wonderful thing, right, when you think about it. Um, because here's one of the problems that we have, and I've talked about this in the past in, in catechesis. We have a kind of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis calls it, where we say, oh, we have so far advanced in our modern times that we do not need the witness of the past. They're all a bunch of dead, woe-begone, uh, brain-dead people that didn't really understand things. Um, listen, if you really want to see the snobbery in a scholar, just ask them what they think about an old, you know, old idea. Um, because a really humble one will say, you know, that's really fascinating, and I'm fascinated by that idea. Um, some will say, oh, but... But seriously, we as Christians don't have that luxury. Why? Yeah, because Scripture's old. Because we, we, we base our witness on the witness of the apostles, those who've come before us. Um, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, as Paul says. Um, so we have to remember this. We have to know this. We have to uh, deeply appreciate this. So the saints are those in heaven and earth who have faith in Christ, who trust in Christ, are set apart to God in Christ, okay, this is about the church's holiness, um, are made holy by His grace, so this is important. How is a saint made holy? Not by saying, I'm going to be holy, I'm going to bust it in the gym and work really hard and I'm going to become holy, yeah. How's that working out for you? We're going to have a Dr. Phil moment. How's it working? It's a disaster, right? It's always a disaster. Because we can't flex. Our, 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 the muscles that we need to become holy just aren't there, right? They're not, we don't have them naturally in us. That's what sin does to us. Um, we need grace. And grace in the Christian understanding is not just, it's not like this. It's not like uh, saying, Savannah Ann is a terrible sinner. I'm sorry to single you out. 
She knows she is. We think she's wonderful. Uh, but, but, but I'm just going to sort of paper over all that and disregard it and look at something else for a bit because I know she's a sinner and I'm just going to look at this covering over her. That's not what Christians believe. Some Christians believe that they're wrong about, about sin and about how redemption works, how justification works. Quite the, quite, quite the opposite. That's not grace. Grace is actually supernatural, a supernatural gift to overcome the state of sin. God gives it to us. Um, as the, as the, uh, the church fathers and later on in the scholastic area, they say, grace perfects nature. Okay? Grace does not override our nature. It perfects it. Because remember, were human beings made bad in the beginning? Were we made sinners? Is it human to err? No. No, no, no. We were made good. We have an original innocence. And our, by our nature is not, um, is not deeply affected by sin. Our, we are bent. We are broken. We are, uh, we are marred by sin. But, but the, the goodness of human nature is not done away with by sin. So we need grace to restore us. Um, by this setting apart, the saints live faithfully in him and for him. How do they live faithfully and for, for Jesus Christ? By grace. This is very important that we understand this. Um, so when you think about that today, and I'm going to preach on this, you know, so you're going to get a double helping. Um, the means by which the Christian is made holy is grace and grace alone. That's something the Reformers got downright straight, right? Now, why did they get it straight? The church has always proclaimed this, always. The ancient councils teach this. No one can uh, make themselves holy. That's entirely the work of God. It's entirely the work of grace. Um, what does the word communion mean? The word communion means being one with someone else in union and unity. Christians use it to refer to the relationship of the three persons within the one being of God, to our union with all three persons through our union with Christ, and to our relationship with one another in Christ. I love, love this answer. Communion. Now, communion in the New Testament is a Greek word, um, which is... Um, very a simple word. It's koinonia, and it literally means being as one with. Okay? Um, every time you see the word fellowship, every time you see the word communion in Scripture, that word is usually koinonia, being as one with. Um, in Acts 2.42, it says the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and koinonia, fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, Paul, Paul says of the Eucharist, the, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a... Koinonia with the blood of Christ, right? Um, the bread which we break, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? Is it not a being as one with? This is a very important theological word in the New Testament, and uh, we usually translate it as communion, and that's actually what in the original text of the Apostles' Creed, which were not in Latin but in Greek, apparently. We don't have the original text, but we, we can know that they were uh, developed in Greek. Um, this is the word that was likely used. There isn't really another word. Um, it means being one with. Christians use it to refer to the relationship of the three persons within the one being of God. So what is, how do we know what perfect communion looks like? Yeah, the Trinity, that's it. Like, there's, I was having this wonderful kind of fun, uh, uh, I'll just share with you my, these, this is the kind of nerdiness that I get into on Facebook, but I had posted some meme, and someone was like, I didn't realize there was a perfect meme, but here it is. And this guy's a philosophy student at Baylor, and I said, you call yourself a philosopher? And, and he went, yes. <laughs> I said, listen, 
everything that exists has a perfection. I know that's kind of hard for modern people to hear, but everything in the creation that exists has a perfection. It's called a telos. Everything has it. When we think about communion as Christians, we should not think about perfect communion that I might have with any one of you. Our mind should immediately go to the Trinity. Because this is where the perfection of communion is found. This is where it derives its end. Not from any communion which we make, right? Because that's always broken in some way. It's always imperfect. Perfect communion is found in the Godhead, um, found within the Trinity. So we say that this, this communion refers to the relationship of the three persons within the one being of God, and then to our union with all three persons through our union with Christ. So, in fact, and we'll talk about this in the sacrament section, or rather the others will talk about this in the sacrament section, what, what occurs to us in baptism is that we're made one with Christ. Um, we are given a fellowship with Christ, and it is through this that we are made one with uh, the divine trinity. And to our relationship with one another, but not as a parody, but as what? In Christ. Okay. Um, the, I think it's something like 38 times in the New Testament this phrase, in Christ, is used. Would you say that's important? It's very important. Uh, Paul makes constant reference to this, in Christ. Behold, if anyone, is a new, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? A new creation. The old, has, the old is gone, the new has come. Um, all this is from whom? Christ. So we have to remember this, that, that, that this, this new identity with which we as Christians have does not come from ourselves. It comes from Christ. What is the communion of saints? The communion of the saints is the unity and fellowship of all those united in one body and one spirit in holy baptism, both those on earth and those in heaven. Um, let's look at these references here. We can look at Ephesians 4, which I'll try to do this a little bit more, look at Scripture references. I just remember that song that gives you all the books in the New Testament. You know the song? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and Letters, the Romans, first and second. Okay. <laughs> you should learn that song. It's good. Um, it's good for teaching kids. Listen to this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay. Now, what he's saying is not that these are separate realities, but what? All of it comes together as one. Right? This is the thing that, that uh, is very hard for modern Christians to understand, is that uh, we've lived so under the shadow of false Reformation teaching. I'm going to be very blunt here and say this. False Reformation teaching, which draws a distinction between faith and baptism. It says they're two separate things. For Martin Luther, um, the practical outworking of his doctrine of justification by faith, the most perfect expression of it, if you want to read Luther, is in his doctrine of baptism. If you want to find out what Luther really thinks about justification by faith, read the large catechism on baptism, because he doesn't see the distinction. He thinks one inheres in the other, right? Faith and baptism, they go together. Um, they are one and the same thing. For the ancient church, they were the same thing. How do we know that? I was saying this last week. When you were baptized as an adult, you would be asked, do you believe in God the Father? And you'd say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the bishop would say, then I baptize you in the name of the Father. And he'd put you under the water and hold you there until you squirmed, and then he'd pull you up. 
do you believe in God the Son? I do. I believe in God the Son. And you would profess the Apostles' Creed, which is your faith, right? And you'd be baptized literally into that faith and into the divine name of the Trinity. These things were together. It's only as this, uh, this understanding of, uh, of the church's theology of baptism being expressly tied um, to adult profession, right? We've got to be clear about that, 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 that all this fell apart. Um, but we, we, have to, we have to realize this, that when Scripture is talking about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, these things go together. They're not separate. Um, and you might ask me, well, what about people who are baptized but don't have faith? The fact you even ask that question means that it's an unnatural division. <laughs> yes? Okay. Um, well, what about people who have faith but aren't baptized? How does that happen, I ask? How is it possible that someone can have faith, read the New Testament, and say, yeah, I don't think baptism is that important? Okay. Listen, go to some half-price bookstore, pull down Strong's Concordance, look up baptism, and tell me that's, that makes sense. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Okay. The two go in here. Okay. I'm off my soapbox. Um, we are united as one unity and fellowship of all those united in one body and one spirit and holy baptism and those on earth and those in heaven. There's only one body of Christ. Go ahead. Yes, it's an unnatural division, but at the same time, there can certainly be a temporal lag. So I, oh, yeah, I no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Here's, here's the other part of this, right? Uh, communion of saints doesn't merely refer to the communion of the saintly people. It also refers to the communion of holy things. So it's actually referring to sacraments. Um, and so it's referring to both and at the same time. Um, I would also say as well that um, the idea in the ancient church, the idea that someone would have faith in Christ but not be baptized um, either soon or almost immediately would be unheard of, right? So I think we've got to kind of make that clear, that yes, there's going to be some lag, and yes, we can say that, but that's not the fullness, right? Um, for instance, I can say, so let me say this about this. I've baptized a bunch of adults in my life. I've had the privilege of baptizing a lot of adults, preparing them for, preparing them for baptism, um, and I can say without a doubt that they have expressed their faith before they were baptized quite clearly, can I say that they were members of the body of Christ? Certainly. With absolute clarity. See, the sacraments seal that up, right? We can say, yeah, you're a believer. You're, you have faith. That's great. But have you been made one with Christ in this sacramental way which Scripture commends to us? As we'll say, the sacraments are sure and certain means of grace. So we know this happens, right? We can say about those who have not yet been baptized, like, do they have the Holy Spirit? Well, sure. Do we know? For sure? You see the question? So it's, it's to say we believe this happens absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. Before you say I 
Andrew's, Andrew's raising, he's, yeah. Andrew's helping me out here. You've thrown me a bone. Uh, listen, baptism is the sacramental sign of the covenant. So he's talking about marriage. Marriage, you know, you're not married until you say I do, until you exchange vows, right? Um, you might love each other a great deal. You might be very committed to each other. So what? Right? Um, this covenantal seal has not been put upon you. Does that make sense? So baptism is very similar to that. And actually, that's why um, baptism is referred to on parity with marriage in Ephesians, right? Paul's talking about Ephesians, and he talks about the washing of water with the word with regard to the church. Um, this is, there's very tightly uh, combined. And we'll see how that goes as we get into the sacrament section. Um, how is the communion of, saints, of the saints practiced? It is practiced by mutual love, care, and service, and by worshiping together where the word of the gospel is preached and the sacraments of the gospel are administered. Anglicanism uh, holds as the doctrine of the church that the church is where the gospel is faithfully preached and the sacraments faithfully administered. We're clear about this because we don't believe that the church subsists in jurisdictional boundaries. We don't believe the church subsists in uh, the authority of bishops over this church or that church or that kind of official communion. What we say is where the word is truly preached and where the sacraments are faithfully administered, that's the church. Okay? Word and sacrament coming together is where the church gets her identity. The church gets her identity because of the apostolic word being proclaimed and the sacraments being administered. Um, that's what makes the communion of saints. And that's why we say the communion of saints not only refers to the people, but refers to the holy things in which we share, right? These sacrament, this sacramental life. Um, but it's practiced by mutual love. So the love that we have for one another, this is how we live out our identity as the communion of saints, by care and service, um, and by worshiping together. Um, this is uh, really the shame, I should say, and we'll talk about this in the Ten Commandments section, but, you know, we kind of have, many of us have a kind of lax attitude towards worship and the, the call to uh, dutifully worship every Sunday with the church. Um, a lot of that is due in part to the fact that we've become deeply individualized, right? We say, well, what does it matter? I mean, I, I believe I can worship God under a tree. Like, but you can't worship as he's commanded you to worship, which is with the living body of the church. Um, and you can't just, and you can't have this sacramental life without being a part of the communion of saints and practicing that and living it out. Um, so it does subsist in care for one another. You can't individualize this. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. They don't exist. They might try to exist, but they don't exist, right? Um, and it's our trying that's the problem. How are the church on earth and the church in heaven joined? All the worship of the church on earth is a participating in the eternal worship of the church in heaven. Here's that word again, participation. This is what koinonia means in Greek, participation. Um, some of you may have studied philosophy, and you know that uh, the ancients believed that uh, the universe is defined by participation, that uh, things like a book participate in the idea of bookness, the form of bookness, right? They, they participate in it. The whole world is participatory. Um, ancient Christians believed this about what they did uh, as members of the church, how they lived out the Christian life. This is an incredibly important thing. We are modern people, and so we don't think like this. We don't think that things participate in other things. We don't, we don't think, 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 think that things participate in internal forms. We're not there. Uh, but we should be, because I can, I've said this before, you can hardly be a Christian and not believe that. <laughs> and, and the reality of it is this. When we come into this building... 
And when we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, I mean what I say. We are being, we are being taken up into heaven. And in fact, you can think about the opposite in reverse, that heaven has come down to us. Um, those boundaries start to fade uh, between heaven and earth. Um, one of my favorite things, it's a it's kind of thing in uh, sci-fi, uh, apocalyptic type movies, is you'll start to see some of the, I'm trying to think of like The Matrix, right? Or uh, something like, oh, I can't quite think of the movies, but, but basically the curtain between the visible and the invisible realm starts to break. Um, this has happened in uh, Doctor Who. Remember when the, there's that rip in, in time? Do you remember this? It's like that really perfect little line in Doctor Who. And you think, oh, this is bad. <laughs> it is. It's bad, right? But, but you're seeing that there's, kind of an, there's, a, there's another dimension that's opening up. And, and the, the kind of uh, curtains which surround our visible experience start to break down. It's a great, when these things happen in movies, you start to, it's really very, uh, it's happening when that happens, okay? It's, it's, it, it breaks, and there's, and there's um, no longer these firm uh, and fast divisions between heaven and earth. Um, this is depicted in, in Christian art um, precisely when you see these kind of uh, collapsed circles. So you'll see this kind of oval shape, sometimes behind the risen Christ, sometimes behind Mary. You see it actually dead right in here. You see it there. See right there in that Christ is in the center, and you see that there's this circle around him. It's a compressed circle. And then you see this square that's been pushed in on the sides. Do you see what's going on? The, 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 the curtain between heaven and earth is being bent because heaven's breaking in through the incarnate Christ, right? Now, I'm going to get a little bit graphic. We don't have any little ears in here, so I'm going to just prepare you for that. But, but this, this shape is actually a, a reference to a woman's body, because in birth, the invisible becomes visible. There's a portal between the two, right? Ancient people are very interested in this. They want to know how this works. And they believe that, the, that Christ being born into the world opens up heaven to us. Do you see? It's the incarnate action of God. Okay? People have asked me, why is the ceiling in the sanctuary? By the way, this is the nave. That's the sanctuary. Why is it blue? <laughs> It's a reference to Mary. Blue is Mary's color. We, we celebrate the Eucharist in the womb of the church, which is always Marian. So the ceiling's blue. Do you see, the, do you see what's going on? It's, the incarnation is having its effect in the gathered body. Do you see? And heaven and earth are joined in one. You see? Paul, Paul speaks of this. Uh, we speak about this in liturgy. Um, uh, about how God has gathered together in one all things heavenly, things earthly, and things heavenly, right? So all of this happens in one. And you'll, by the way, now that I've kind of opened this up for you, you'll see it all the time. You'll see it in iconography. You'll see it in even just even uh, just strange pieces of art where you look and say, "Oh my goodness, that's exactly what that is." Yes, yes, that's what it is. Um, so, you know. I've opened that up for you. You can even see little bits up here in some of these lilies. You know, they're all around here. These are not just decorative flowers. They're meant to show you this. They're meant to show you that um, this glorious image of heaven is being opened up in the church. Um, listen, even Lutherans can do things like that. They're, they're uh, kind of amazing. 
Okay, and this is where we start with the sacraments, okay? So, so when we think about the sacraments, we think about the communion of saints, what it means to be a people who share in the holy things of God. Go ahead. Yep. Ah, well, I mean, think about it. The, the action of the saints in heaven forever will be that of worship. So, eternal going forward. Yeah, eternal going forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, as I said last week, when we, when we speak about the saints, we're not just speaking about those who are alive, and we're not even speaking about those who, happen, who were born or who lived in the time of Christ and going forward. We actually speak of like, well, and you see this in the, in, the, um, uh, in the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, I mean, they're considered saints, um, the holy ones of God, um, who almost preemptively received the grace or uh, ex post facto received the grace of Jesus. Uh, so that, you can have fun with that one. Um, okay, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. Okay, I'm going to break this down. Sacrament simply means, uh, in, in, our wor- in our wording, because it's a Latin word, it means, sacramentum means a holy thing, essentially. Um, it's a holy thing. Um, is an outward and visible, so you got two parts, right? You got the outward and visible, which is what? Which you can see. We're going to have a baptism here. What's the outward invisible sign of baptism? Water and the Word, right? Because if it's just water, didn't happen. If it's just the Word, also didn't happen, okay? Water and Word. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, the washing of water with the Word. The Word is what you say, okay? But it's a sign, and I'm going to get into what sign means, of an inward and spiritual grace. So that's the invisible part that is interior, Okay. God gives us the sign as a means. I'm going to break this down for you. Okay. What we usually speak of in Anglicanism, and, and this has been the case for many, many centuries, is of an effectual sign, meaning that it's by the sign that the thing happens, right? Um, uh, it, it means that um, the sign is the means whereby that grace is given. Um, now, we're really good with symbols, not so great with signs. And I can sort of draw the false uh, distinction between the two. It is false. Uh, but, but it's to say this. A symbol doesn't... A symbol's kind of useless, isn't it, in a certain sense? Like, okay, you're driving down the highway, you look up, you see a shell in the sky. What can that shell do for you? Nothing, Right? Now, if you're, if you're cognizant, most of the time you don't even think about it. You think, oh, good, I'll, get, I'll stop and get gas. Maybe use the bathroom. You see? You, you see it. So through that shell, you see what's, what, what's promised to you, right? But the shell in itself is useless. It doesn't give you anything. That sign doesn't do it. That symbol doesn't do it. The, a sign is quite different. Um, a sign actually gives you the thing that, that, that you're after. Um, so we'll keep that in mind for this. Um, God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So note, I don't stand before you and say, this might be the body and blood of Christ. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it might be. And thankful we are for all that. 
What do I say? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. I say it in confidence, not in myself, because, listen, I've got nothing to be confident of, okay? Um, Anybody's skepticism about a priest being able to do what we say we do is well-founded, okay? Um, But that's not the point. (laughs) Um, The point is that by doing this thing, it's done. Um, And that is what the church is taught about, about, about orders. So, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other sense that we use that word is you sign a contract. Yes. Not a textual without the signature. Right. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. That, that helps. Yeah. I, I, I'm also not convinced that this signed symbol is the same as the No, I'm. Like on, like on Sunday mornings, we pass the peace. We're not kind of play-acting our fellowship as Christians. We're not sort of saying, like, this is like how we should be with each other. And so, you know, it's, it's, we're not sort of expressing our aspirations. What are we doing? We're actively expressing our fellowship as Christians. Do you see the point? Now, what do, what do handshakes and hugs have to do with that? Right? But, they, but, but it shows us that, Right? And, it's, and we're actually doing it. It's not just sort of like we're play-acting. We're actually doing it. Oh, it could be a sign too, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, listen. Yeah, you buy a car. What do you do? You shake the hand of the guy who sold it to you. I mean, you still do this stuff. Like, you shake, your, you shake hands when you meet, but that's not buying the car. You shake hands after you exchange cash and the keys, right? Does that make sense? That's a sign that that's happened. Um, and covenantal signs have always worked this way. They're always shown in that way. So that's one of the things the, the sacraments do. Um, but, and part of the reason I'll just say this, we need tangible assurances of grace. Do you know why? Lest we doubt, Right? Here's the problem with non-sacramental Christianity. I'll just say it, just straight up. There's always this sneaking suspicion. What if I didn't really get grace? What's going to happen to me? Am I sure that I got grace? Do I really know? Um, I mean, this is one of the things that I love about, uh, about the church's teaching on ordination, for instance, is I, listen, there are mornings when I am not at my best, and I might say something awful to my wife, and I might kick the dog on my way out of the house. But you don't have to worry about whether or not you actually get the body and blood of Christ. You don't have to worry about whether or not your children were really baptized because of that. Thanks be to God, right? Now, that's no excuse, right? <laughs> but it's to, say, it's to say this. You don't have to worry about it because God says he'll do what he does, and you, and you don't need to worry about it. Okay. How should you receive the sacraments? I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments, and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. Okay, this is where I have to correct the catechism. So uh, this is fixed in future editions, being published by Crossway on January 23rd. Uh, there's There's a false statement in this. Can you find it? 
faith is actually not necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. Faith goes hand in hand with receiving the grace of the sacraments, but it's not necessary, right? A little baby does not need to have faith to receive the grace of baptism. Thanks be to God for that, right? We have it on their behalf, right? But it's not necessary. We teach this strongly um, because we're not, we're not semi-Pelagian, right? We actually hold that um, it is God who's the actor in the sacraments and not us. Um, faith is a gift. It's not something we get. It's not something we grasp for. It's not something we even have to have in order to get grace. Um, grace is given, then faith, if anything, okay? So I want to clear that up. But we definitely should receive the sacraments by faith. <laughs> I'm going to be clear about that, right? Um, you know, when you come to the rail to receive communion, you should come by faith. Um, that, that, is not, that is not the question. Um, but I do need to be clear about that. This gets clarified in future editions of the Catechism. Um, what are the sacraments of the gospel? The two sacraments ordained by Christ, which are generally necessary for our salvation, are baptism and Holy Communion, which is also known as the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. This is going to be the last question for the day because I've got to wrap it up because we've got a baptism coming, but I want to introduce this concept before others take over next Sunday. Um, the two sacraments ordained by Christ, which are generally necessary for, salva- for our salvation, are baptism and Holy Communion, which is also known as the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. Okay, I'm going to make this, uh, I'm going to tell you how this operates, Okay. This is a definition which is taken directly from the Articles of Religion, Article 25, uh, which holds a distinction between sacraments of the gospel and other sacraments. Someone asked me this question this past week on last Sunday. Um, in, in, in Roman Catholicism and in pre-Reformation Anglicanism, it was generally understood that there were seven sacraments. The problem is that people were confused as to which sacraments were necessary for salvation. They would say things like, if you die having not been anointed with oil, you're going to hell. Is that biblical? No. If you die without making your confession, you're going to hell. Is that biblical? No. So the Reformers are quick to correct this. What they want to hold is biblical teaching on the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist in particular, because there is directly salvific language used with regard to these two sacraments, and I'll, I'll get into that, um, but without saying that the others are necessary. So what do they say? These two are generally necessary for salvation, and I'll explain what that means. There are five others, which we'll get to, not generally necessary for salvation, not necessary for salvation at all, okay? You see where we're going? Now, what do we mean by generally necessary? Well, I tell this story every year when we get to this section because I think it explains this very well. When I was a senior at Texas A&M University, I know you can forgive me for that, uh, I went to do my final degree audit, and it came back, you do not have the credits you need for graduation. And I thought, what? (laughs) I dug into it a little bit. I didn't have enough international elective credits. And I thought to myself, hold up. I took just this very semester and in passing martial arts, cultures, and people, and I was told that this is an international elective. What gives? So I made a call to the undergraduate programs office, and, she, and the woman on the phone said, oh yes, uh, that's been happening. Um, well, we're, 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 and then she gave me this very unsatisfactory answer. So I said, okay. And <laughs> this was 8 o'clock in the morning. I got on my bike. I rode over to the undergraduate programs office, and I went up to the lackey 
you know, student who was manning the desk, and I said, I need to see the undergraduate programs director immediately. And she was like, well, um, she won't be available till Thursday. I said, is she here? Yes, but she can't see you till Thursday. I said, I'm going to sit here. And when she comes out of her office, I'd like to speak with her as she walks to whatever's coming next. Well, that's going to be a while. I can wait. <laughs> so I sat there, and finally, uh, I kept saying, can I see her now? Does she have time for me? This is really important. This is really urgent, because it was like five days from graduation. Okay. So finally, she's like, oh, gosh. So she, I go back to her office, and she says, listen, I'm really sorry. This has been happening with this particular advisor who got very excited and told everyone that this would be an international elective. It is not an international elective. Uh, just run the degree audit in a couple days. Everything should be fine. Okay, great. So I go back, run the degree audit, and I had received credit for a graduate-level class that I never took. Okay? Our two international electives required for graduation at Texas A&M University. Yes, absolutely. They're generally necessary. Do you see? Now, someone with power can dispense from that requirement. Do you see? What we say about this is God can do whatever he wants because he's God. So if he wants to mystically baptize you some way before you're, before you're dead, he's going to darn well do it because he's God. If he wants to mystically give you his body and blood, he's going to do it. Okay? If he also wants to save you without that, he's going to do it. Do you see the point? Okay. So... So hear that. Generally necessary means simply that. Generally necessary, okay? Just generally, right? Just like I say, it's generally necessary that you go through catechesis before you get confirmed. And then some, some PhD in Anglican theology comes in the door. Am I going to make him go through catechesis? Yes, it's generally necessary. But he might be also like, uh, I think we can just, okay, fine, we can do it, right? Um, but you see my point is that these are generally necessary. Now, why do, we, why do we believe they're generally necessary? Well, because that's what Scripture says. Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized, what? Will be saved. Okay, it's not brain surgery. Um, what's another one? Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life within you. Okay, we're simply just holding forth what Scripture says. Um, this was not, I should say this as well, this was not some sort of racy, kind of theologically weird thing to say in the Reformation. This was like normal teaching, right? This is very normal among the Reformers. They all kind of say, yeah, of course, Scripture says you got to do this. Like, you got to do it. It's necessary. Um, today, what we've done, and this is the real problem, is we've divorced the church's sacramental life from the life of faith. And we say the one is where you get justification. The other is sort of like nice, let me tell you, there is nothing nice about baptism. What we are going to do today is we're going to kill two babies in a stone baptismal font and raise them up out of the water, new creations, okay? The old man dies in the water. A new man's raised up. This is what we mean by regeneration, okay? Now, the other priests are going to deal with all this down the road, but I just want to say, we are talking about powerful sacraments, okay? We're talking about um, uh, uh, in physical uh, tangible signs, the very means by which we're saved. Okay? Does, that, does that get magically divorced from faith? Hear what I'm saying today. No, not at all. Faith is necessary. Faith is essential. Faith actually inheres in baptism. Um, so what we actually believe will happen today is that these, these children being made alive with Christ um, can live with him, can live for him. That's what we teach. 
They have this gift. They have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe that uh, this will work. Now, can they oppose it? Can they grind their teeth and say, I don't want the grace? Sure. God doesn't take away your free will in the waters of baptism. You do what you want. Um, but if you submit to it, if you offer your life to it, um, it will take. Okay? And for those of you who are parents or about to be parents, this is how parenting works. We offer our children up to God, and we, 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 uh, we humble ourselves and say, I don't have the goods to raise this child perfectly. Okay? Um, parenting is an act of faith. Would you agree? Yeah, big act of faith, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't work if you think, I'm going to buy my might and ability and amazing parenting skills and all the books I've read. Be a great parent. They'll have Dr. Phil moment about that too. How's that working out? <laughs> it's not, okay? Um, we, we, you know, we enter this child into faith. We, we, we submit the fate of this child to God, um, and we ask that God will do what he says he will do. All right, we'll pick up next week. Thank you all.